Hear the word of the Lord. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we today? It is a joy to be together today, to catch up with one another, to uh, push pause on our uh, normal schedules, to be present through prayers and singing and scripture reading and conversing on the scripture in order to discern together what the Holy Spirit is calling us to in light of our time together. That's a joyous thing, right? Amen. Got one amen at least. That's good. So uh, <clears throat> this morning I was uh, revisited by an old friend that I haven't seen in quite a while. Uh, I didn't even know that I was missing this friend until this morning, but I uh, last night in a moment of weakness I agreed with the rest of my family that it, the temperature had dropped enough in our house that we needed to turn on the heater. And so we turned it on. We have a gas furnace. And uh, I, one of my favorite things is to feel the chill of the air and then hear the furnace kick on in the hallway. And you can just hear it. You hear it warming up before it actually begins to send the warm air your way. And accompanied with that warming is the smell of winter. It's the burning, warm smell that alerts you that something good is coming your way in the form of heat. And as I sat there and was revisited by that smell, I remembered... Uh, Back in my childhood, my grandparents bought an old house. And in this old house, before they fully remodeled it, there were these floor heaters. You might remember these things? They were just maybe 
three foot by four foot grates in the ground and there was a heater under there that would send heat hot air and grandma would warn all of us children not to touch it because it became so hot uh, to, in today's safety conscious world things like this wouldn't fly but back then I guess it was it was more of a novelty for us because we obviously we had central air and heat but it was always fun to uh, be feel the warmth that's generated in those floor vents and so we would gather at my grandparents house for Christmas and uh, stay there for a few days and always my grandma would beat uh, all of us awake I don't know how she did it but she was always awake before everybody else and she would always have breakfast ready for us sometimes it would be uh, homemade biscuits and sometimes it was just frosted mini wheats now I would never say anything insulting about my grandma or disparaging towards her but if I was going to the one complaint that I would have is that she only bought skim milk I don't know where skim milk came from but it's a terrible invention Milk was made to be drank as God intended it, and that's full of fat and cream. But my grandma did not agree. And so thankfully, even though she aired with skim milk, she always had frosted mini-wheats. And if you let your frosted mini-wheats dissolve enough, the frosting and sugar from the mini-wheats would uh, mix in with the milk, and you could actually drink it at that point and not feel like you were just drinking water. But we would eat breakfast... And then after we ate breakfast, uh, we would play who can stand over the floor heaters the longest. And I think that burning smell that you get from the furnace and maybe from some of your hairs on your legs burning, that that brings such a joyous memory back when I hear my heater and smell the heat that is about to come and I was thankful this morning for those times aren't you thankful for the memories that you have maybe seemingly silly uh, times but things that bring you joy when you recall them whatever brings on those memories well in order for us to hear what it is that Jesus has to say to us uh, I invite us to pray this prayer together and I think I might need some help to get it up there prepare our hearts O God to accept your word amen those are good words I have completely lost my ability to control over here so I'm flying blind oh wait maybe that maybe it's gonna work now let's see okay we'll try it and see what happens <clears throat> have you ever said something out loud that the moment you said it you wished that it had remained a part of your internal dialogue <laughs> ever ever been there of course we have all done this right you've thought something and you just blurted it out or maybe you didn't blurt it out maybe you said it and just thought that afterwards that you should not have said it well it's one thing to say something out loud and wish that it would have remained in 
and internal dialogue. It's a whole other thing to write out for other people to read an internal dialogue. And as I was thinking and praying and reading about our scripture today, I came across a writing that began with this. I often say to myself that. This is a beginning of a reflection on this passage of scripture in uh, Luke chapter 21 and others that are like it throughout the Bible. And I wanted to read it to us, but before we do that, I wanted to share with you maybe why this particular writing, uh, I think, is worthy of us to stop and think about. If you remember back the last several weeks, we have been following Jesus along his journey through the Gospel of Luke to where? To the cross, right, and to the city of Jerusalem. And on his way there, he encountered a bunch of different types of people, but mainly the types of people who we read about in uh, Luke's version of this story are different groups of Jewish people, mainly the Samaritans, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Great work. Carly earns an extra star for the day. The Pharisees, the Samaritans, and the Sadducees. And what's interesting about these encounters with these individuals and these groups of people that Jesus had is that Jesus was an intriguing figure for them, right? They didn't dislike Jesus from the very beginning. Jesus was performing these signs and miracles, and they wondered if perhaps he actually was who he was claiming to be. Maybe he is God's son. Maybe he is the Messiah who has come to save us. And so they were intrigued enough to try and find out. The problem is, as we talked about a little bit last week and a couple weeks before that, is that they all had their expectations of what the Messiah was going to be like. They had all of their boxes that once the Messiah arrived, if they were definitely the Messiah, they would check all of their boxes. But what we find out in reading in these interactions with Jesus and these people is that sometimes the expectations that we have can actually become a distraction from us seeing clearly what is right in front of us. It certainly was the problem with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Samaritans. And I have wondered for a long time with all of our efforts to describe what does the end of things look like? And what are things going to be look like in the end? That with all of these theories that we have developed, I have often wondered if we are putting expectations on Jesus for him to meet rather than allowing Jesus simply to be Jesus and show up as he desires. And so that brings me to this reflection from Louis Ever, sorry, not Everly. I get that confused because it sounds like it's going to be Evelyn each time. 
uh, but Everly is his name, Louis Everly. And here is what he says. I often say to myself that in our religion, God must feel very much alone. For if there is anyone besides God, for is there anyone besides God who believes in the salvation of the world? God seeks among us sons and daughters who will resemble him enough, who love the world enough that he could send them into the world to save it. Isn't that an interesting reflection? Obviously, talking about Jesus' return and talking about Jesus' first arrival, that God sent his son into the world to save it. And of course, we as people, we are not God's son, uh, and to the extent that Jesus is God's son, because Jesus is also God, and Jesus did the work of salvation, but we are ambassadors of Jesus, and we are sent by God into our neighborhoods in order to be examples of grace and peace for the world. And I wonder how sometimes if we become distracted by some of the things that we have been taught to expect that we forget that this is what God desires for us. You know, we have today and then next week, and we will be finished with this journey through the Gospel of Luke, because not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that begins our, the season of Advent. And I have been thinking all week that it is nuts to me that the holiday season is is here, right? It is. I was somewhere yesterday, and they were playing Christmas music, and I had to pinch myself, like, what in the world? Why would they be playing Christmas music? Like, oh, it's well, the holidays are here. And it seems like sometime in the late summer, early fall, that you think about the holiday season, and it just feels so far away, and then it's like warp speed, and you're there. Anybody else feel that way? But that is where we are at. And the holiday season brings with it a bunch of unique practices and things that we do around Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's that are, are out of the ordinary times. Things like visiting Christmas lights and uh, going to holiday parties or Christmas parties and all of these different things that we do. There are lots of things during this time of year that capture our attention no matter how old we are. Oftentimes, for something to capture our attention, it has to be the biggest and the flashiest and the loudest, right? Think about uh, police sirens or fire trucks, right? They want to have the loudest sirens and the flashiest lights so that you get out of their way when they're headed towards an emergency. And as we are firmly planted in the digital age, it seems like it's more difficult to get and hold someone's attention. But when I read this passage of scripture in Luke 21 this week, I thought, well, maybe this isn't a new problem. Because as we read with the disciples, they too are distracted. We find them at the beginning of this scripture in uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 5, and they are distracted, not by screens or flashy lights, but by 
beautiful stones that decorate the temple and by the large sums of money that people were giving as offerings. And these distractions that the disciples were dealing with and distractions that things that distract us, sometimes even our expectations, they can distort our kingdom vision so that we aren't seeing clearly. And when we live distracted, all of the sudden, the yeah buts began to take hold in our lives. And the things that we are distracted by become the important thing that demands our attention. But this too is not a new problem, right? We see this unfolding over and over again throughout the Old Testament. For the nation of Israel, it was often security, prosperity, and comfort that led to people being distracted. And throughout the Old Testament, the prophets attempted to help people see that they have succumbed to these distractions. Each and every time that they were distracted, there were different things that were competing for their attention. Sometimes it was the armies of the surrounding nations which provide protection. But the problem with finding protection in the largest armies is that sometime, somewhere, there's going to be someone who has a larger army. The problem, the, sometimes it was the walls that were built around their cities to make them stand apart and be great. But there's always going to be ways for people to circumvent those walls, to get over them or around them, or as we see in the Old Testament, to topple them. Sometimes it was the festivities and rituals that people used to connect with other deities. But as we read in the Old Testament, no matter how these festivals and, and, and rituals play out, that they end up consulting an empty God. But we see these ways pop up over and over and over again that go against the kingdom ways, that go against the ways of God. And we see it from the moment that it begins, but for the people who were living it, it's not so sudden, right? It's a slow and persistent unwinding of the kingdom. We talk about a long obedience in the same direction, that step by step, that, that, that identifying the next right thing and doing that is the way that we live according to the kingdom of God. But there's also the opposite of that, there's a slow and persistent unwinding if we aren't careful, if we are living distracted that we might get tangled up in. And the people of Israel found themselves many times caught up in this cycle. The cunning ways of brokenness sneak in and they devour our best intentions and the illusions that we have of our self-reliance. And we see this on repeat generation after generation after generation. Jesus mentions that in this passage. In Luke, 
he describes it this way. He says, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will, come, will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. When we read this, this sounds a lot like today. But as we study history, this kind of sounds a lot like every generation. Because what Jesus is describing here are the ways of brokenness and how they manifest themselves in the world. And that this is a sign of the gradual and slow unwinding of God's kingdom. So it makes sense for us then that we would live as Jesus instructed and keep watch, that we would stay on our toes through practices of examine and forgiveness and mutual accountability. And if we fail at these, then we likely will become distracted like generations have before us. In the Old Testament, when you're reading about the nation of Israel, one of the symptoms that pops up over and over and over again, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that the way that, that identifies people living distracted, one of those symptoms is this, that the way a community cares for the least of these tells the most true story of what they value. This has been the defining characteristic of God's people from the beginning, how God instructed them to care for the least among them. And it's still the defining factor for how a community exists in the kingdom of God for us today. So when we see those on the underside and the outside being and taken advantage of, being mistreated or neglected or ignored, we can be sure that the community that is doing that or the nation that is doing that or the individual that is doing that is out of sync with who God has called them to be. And when the people of God are caught up living in ways that neglect our neighbors for the sake of that which has distracted us, be it comfort or security or prosperity or something else, then there's no one left to stand in the gap. There's no one else to stand up and say, wait a minute, this is not the way for us to go. The crazy thing about the things that distract us is that they're always things that are temporary. No matter how permanent they might seem, they are always temporary. This is what Jesus alludes to when the disciples are distracted by the ornate stones in the temple and the large sums of money. He says, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one of these stones will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Could you imagine Jesus standing in front of this grandiose temple, which 
is probably a temple ornate in such a way that some of these people who had never been there had never seen anything so grand before. And Jesus says, one day this is all going to come crumbling down. The ornate and the grandiose will eventually be toppled. And in the meantime, there are going to be lots of people, Jesus says, who claim my name and they serve only to distract you and pacify you until you have become complicit in their scheme. So what then is the example that Jesus draws our attention to to help us stay away from that path of destruction? What then shall we follow so that we aren't led astray? Well, in this story, what Jesus draws their attention to is an overlooked widow who, before the disciples were distracted, offered an unappreciated amount of money. Jesus draws their attention to her in the midst of this conversation. According to all of those who witnessed this, this old widow lady comes forward and puts in just what amounts to a little bit of change. And they see this happen and there's this connection of thinking, well, this little bit is not really significant at all. Like, this is not going to continue to maintain these beautiful ornate stones that have developed. This gift pales in comparison to these large sums of money that other people are offering. Why even bother with this gift? Since we started uh, this sermon today talking about things that maybe we shouldn't say, I'll offer you something that perhaps I shouldn't say, but uh, one of the traditions that we have developed in uh, Kelly's side of the family is that before, in the, during Christmas season, sometime before Christmas, we drive around their neighbor, her parents' neighborhood, and we look at Christmas lights. They have a, a, a house that they live out kind of in the country, and there's a house that's on acres of land, and uh, this, these people put out hundreds and hundreds of Christmas decorations in their front yard. I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous how much uh, decorations they have and put out. And you actually, they've carved a path through their yard that people drive through and, and see all of these ornate uh, Christmas decorations. And then as we drive through their neighborhood, it's just a normal neighborhood with normal Christmas lights. But it's always interesting to me how some people pay so much attention to the details of their Christmas lights. You know, they're all straight. They all uh, have a theme. You know, they, they, they have, some of them even have music that you can turn your car radio on and the music will play along with the light show or, or whatever. But then there's some of these that uh, it's like somebody found a 
light a string of Christmas lights in their garage and decided they were just going to throw them up on a bush and that was going to be the decorations for Christmas. Or they outlined the door, you know, with this one strand. And so kind of a fun thing that perhaps this is maybe what we shouldn't do, but we have a rating scale of what Christmas lights we really like. And that scale goes from ooh-ah as the highest down to the lowest, which is the why bother, right? Which is reserved for those who maybe just change out their um, porch light with a green light or something like that. But the why bother, that's That's the sentiment that this widow who brings this offering in in the midst of this grandiose place with all of these other people offering these large sums of money, that's the sentiment that is there. But Jesus defies that and draws attention to her in the midst of all that is going on around her. What tends to happen is that when we don't think we have much, we think whatever we might offer is insignificant. And one of the tools of the way of brokenness is to make us feel like we don't have much, to make us always want more, to think that what we have is insignificant. So why would we try to seek anything different or live in any different ways? What can little old me do? What can our little group of people do? But this couldn't be further from the truth because what all of us can do is to, com- is to fully commit to leverage our abilities and influence and resources, however significant or insignificant they might be, to bless our neighbors and to allow the Holy Spirit to unleash God's power so that every one of our neighbors know that they are loved by their Creator. So that they know that God sent His Son for them and that God sent us in the name of Jesus to share his love with our neighbors. And there is no discounting that. Thomas A. Kempis wrote a prayer that I printed and had laminated uh, had it laminated because if you get something that's laminated, you think it's more important than just an old sheet of paper, right? And so uh, we'll send each of us home with this today. But it's, it's a prayer that I hope you will pray because I think it sums up what we've been discovering on this uh, road to Jerusalem through the Gospel of Luke. But here's what, he, here's what it says. It says, Grant me, O Lord, to know what I ought to know, to love what I ought to love, to praise what delights you most, to value what is precious in your sight, to hate what is offensive to you. Now that says to hate what is offensive to you. Don't read that as to hate what's offensive to me. And continues. Do not Suffer me to judge according to the sight of my eyes, nor to pass sentence according to the hearing of the ears of ignorant 
people, but to discern with a true judgment between things visible and spiritual, and above all, always to inquire what is the good pleasure of your will. In the season of Advent, which we will begin here in a couple of weeks, we celebrate, we spend the the time up until Christmas celebrating that Jesus is going to arrive, which is what we celebrate on Christmas Day, but also that Jesus is returning. And as we celebrate that, we recognize that just as it is with almost every element of the kingdom of God, that this is both a reality in the future, but also that is now an unfolding around us. Because what the New Testament teaches us is that Jesus is returning in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work with us each and every moment of the day. So may we be vessels, may our lives be vessels that allow Jesus to return to our neighborhoods right here, right now, with every breath that we breathe and every action that we make. Would you pray this prayer with me as Jesus taught us? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.